new things typically make us nervous, don't they? And they should. I think that's healthy. I think the, one of the main reasons that new things make us uncomfortable is, number one, they, they kind of challenge the status quo. They kind of challenge us in our routines. They challenge us in things that we are comfortable with. But I think the other side of it is, is that we see new things come and go so often, don't we? That so often new things are kind of fly by night. They don't last. They aren't anchored into anything of true substance. And so we become skeptical of things that are new. No doubt over the course of the past four or five weeks as we've walked through what it looks like as a church family kind of going forward, what, what our polity is going to look like and our bylaws are going to look like, some of them are profoundly different than what many of you perhaps have seen before. And maybe at times you have wondered, I'm just not sure about this new stuff. I'm not sure about these, these new, new ways. I'm not sure about this new idea. But what I want you to hear me say this morning is that it has been our goal from the very beginning to not do something new, but to instead do something very, very very old. Something as old, in fact, as the New Testament. You see, if you look over the whole of church history, because we are sinners in the church, we're going to talk about that here in just a minute, but because we are sinners in the church, and because none of us have the perfect theology, and because none of us have a perfectly biblical worldview, and because none of us come to the scriptures, or come to the church, or come to Christ without baggage, and without, without presuppositions that we're bringing to the table, every generation loses various parts of a biblical life. Every generation, if you look over the course of 2,000 years, loses important biblical doctrines, important biblical truths. But God is faithful, brothers and sisters. And he does not let them remain lost. Just as we saw Josiah find the scrolls of God and dust them off and revival come, God always brings his word back to be. And so you'll see in the early church, they so focused on the transcendence of God and the holiness of God that they missed the love of God. You might say in our day that we so focus on the love of God that we miss the transcendence of God and the holiness of God. The generation before me, or, or two generations before me, they had lost the inerrancy of the scriptures, the authority of the Bible. And the generation before me went back and won it. Lord brought revival, didn't he? So when we come to, to church discipline this morning, I want you to see this is not new. This is very, very old. As a matter of fact, if you go back and you read the history of our church, and you look in the beginning in the 1880s, and you go all the way to 19, around the 1950s, you will see that our church very faithfully carried out church discipline. These are not new things. Elders are not new things. These are not new things. These are very, very old things. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And this will be the last week of the bylaw series. I know you guys, some of y'all are like, ah, thank God. I'm kind of like that too. But this has been a great time together. But this will be the final week 
uh, that we spend in the Word together. So Matthew 18, if you have your Bible, stand with me as we read God's Word together. Matthew 18, verse 15. Zach, maybe we'll get back to this passage in like 2019, as you said, as we continue preaching through Matthew, right? We'll come back to it one day and talk about it again. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even, even to the church, listen even to the church, list, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. When we come to Matthew chapter 18... Jesus has in his mind, front and center, how it is that we are going to exist together in the body of Christ. How we are going to coexist as brothers and sisters in this family that is the church, especially in the local church. And so at the beginning of Matthew chapter 18, you have Jesus redefining greatness. That greatness in the church will not be defined as greatness in the world is defined. Greatness will not be seen as monetary success. It will not be seen as worldly prosperity. It will not even be seen as worldly influence. It will be those that lower themselves. In my kingdom, the, the greatest shall be last, least, and the least shall be greatest. He goes on to say that those in the church must live lives in such a way that they are not a stumbling block to their brothers and sisters. That they are not stumbling blocks on the journey to godliness. They are not stumbling blocks on the pathway to faithfulness. Especially to those that are younger. Especially to those that are less mature. Then he says that as we live in the church with one another. That we should treat one another and go after one another. And be with one another as Christ himself is with us. That if there are a hundred sheep in the flock... And one of them falls away, we should go after that sheep. We should be driven, all of us, by our priestly desire, by our priestly responsibility to care for one another and to want one another to succeed and to pursue one another so that that brother or sister might be restored, might be reconciled into the flock. Then when we come to this morning's passage, what do we see? How do we deal with conflict with one another? How do we deal with disagreement with one another? How do we deal with sin when we recognize sin in a brother or a sister? Or when we ourselves have been sinned against? You see, in the whole of Matthew chapter 18, what we see Jesus in Jesus is the assumption that the church will not be perfect. Why is it that we have to have a new definition of greatness? Because too often in the church, we have the wrong definition of greatness. 
Why is it that we have to be told not to be stumbling blocks to one another? Because in our flesh, in our wickedness, in our sinfulness, in our self-centeredness, we can become stumbling blocks, especially to our children. Especially to those that are in our homes. Especially those that are looking up to us and following after us. Why do we have to be told to go after the one that leaves the flock? Because brothers and sisters are going to fall away. Because sin is going to come. Brokenness is going to come. You see, the church is not the place where sin and brokenness no longer exist. Some of y'all need to hear me say that. We live in a world today that tries to undermine the authority of the church. That tries to undermine the necessity of the church, the importance of the church, the value of the church. Even the whole Christian faith, because what they see is, is sin that exists in the members of the church. Hypocrisy that exists in the members of the church. The church is not the place where hypocrisy ceases to exist. The church is not the place where brokenness ceases to exist. The church is not the place where sin ceases to exist. The church is the place where sin is acknowledged and overcame. You see, we look at each other and we know that we've been wounded sometimes, don't we? We know that we've been hurt. Some of you have been profoundly hurt by the church. Some of you have went home and you have cried over the way people in the church have treated you. You have, you have wondered if all of this is even true because you have been so profoundly damaged. And We cannot let that be fatal though. We cannot let the woundedness that we have experienced in the church be fatal to our faith. The church is the place where it exists. Where we're open about it. What is the alternative? The alternative is that we go back to the world. The alternative is that we go back to the world where they don't believe that there's sin. We go back to the world where they don't believe that there's brokenness. We go back to the world where they refuse to acknowledge their hypocrisy. We go back to the world where people will not support us in the faith. We go back to the world where people will not have our backs in the midst of our struggles. We go back to the world where we were betrayed and spat upon to begin with. We go back to the world that will allow us to do what we want to do because they don't care to tell us otherwise. You see, what all of us understand is that in our families, there are flaws, aren't there? Some of you have been profoundly hurt by your families, and you come from a family so unhealthy, perhaps it is better that you no longer hear from many of them. But what most of us understand is that if you, in the, even in the most healthy family, even in the family in which husband and wife love one another, uh, sons and daughters admire their parents, even in those families there are flaws, aren't there? There is brokenness, isn't there? There is sin. There is hypocrisy. There is mistreatment. But what do we all know? We still need our families. We still need our families. As a matter of fact, you know what kind of family I want to be a part of? The kind of family that's transparent about their flaws. The kind of family that looks in the mirror, realizes their imperfection, and then acknowledges it. 
The kind of family that I want to be a part of is the kind of family that says, man, I damaged you, I hurt you, and I'm sorry. Not the kind of family that says, well, you got what was coming to you. Our goal in the church should not be to expect perfection from everyone. But rather to live with one another in our flaws with grace, helping push and promote one another to greater godliness. Help push and promote one another to greater health. Help push and promote one another to greater vibrancy in the faith. If you turn your back on the church because you find sin in the church, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Before you get mad at somebody that lied to you in the church, think of how often you yourself lie. You see, what happens is, is we look at everybody else and we say, don't judge me because you're a Pharisee. Don't tell me what to do because you're a Pharisee. And then what do we become? We become Pharisees. We become those that say, don't tell me about my sin. You got sin. Why? Pharisees don't want to hear about their sin. We become those that say, I can't associate with you because you do X, Y, Z. Why? Because you're a Pharisee. Inside of every single one of us, there are these tiny little Pharisees that keep popping up, aren't there? That's why we need Matthew 18. That's why we need Matthew 18. We need Matthew 18 because sin is going to be in the church. We need Matthew 18 because brokenness still exists in the church. We need Matthew 18 so that we might know how it is that we relate to one another, so how it is that we can help one another and allow one another to grow in godliness and to succeed and live victoriously in this Christian life according to the freedom that Christ has won for us already. So what does he tell us to do? Now, your Bible says that if you've been sinned against, you'll probably know, or your Bible may not say that. It may be in a footnote. If you go back, the very earliest manuscripts that we now have do not have that in there. That comes in later manuscripts. And so it's disputed whether or not that phrase um, against you is in there or not. But as is most of the time when we come to variance in the text and manuscripts, what, what happens most of the time is if you take that out, it actually makes it stronger. And it doesn't affect the tone, it doesn't affect the, the mean anymore. So here's what we would say. It either mean, it, it, he is either saying, if you see your brother in his sin, then go to him. Or he is saying, if your brother sins against you, go to him. But the, the meaning is the same. The meaning is the same. So what happens if you see your brother in sin? What happens if your brother has sinned against you? Are you supposed to go to Jack's and tell everybody there that's eating a gravy and biscuit about what has happened to you? Are you supposed to, to go and, and, and tell the preacher, hey, you're not going to believe what happened to me. You're not going to believe what I heard. No. Are you supposed to sit at home with your little Boston Terrier, have an imaginary conversation, seething with anger? Yeah, you've done that. See, y'all laugh because you do that, don't you? Yeah. Uh-huh. Your cat has some cool juice on you. Right? It knows the stuff is going down at your house. No. What are you to do? You are to go to your brother yourself. Novel idea. Your brother sins against you? Go to your brother and discuss it with him. 
You see your brother in the midst of sin. Go to your brother, not to everyone else. There is no gossip in the gospel. Go to him. Talk to him about it. Confront him in his sin. Now, it needs to be said that we don't go to our brother every time our feelings get hurt. We don't go to our brother every time we are a bit offended. We don't go to our brother every time that we disagree. We can disagree about things that are not sinful. We can be offended by things that are not sinful. You know, it's quite easy for us as sinners, it's quite easy for us as flawed human beings to be hurt by things that perhaps we shouldn't have been hurt by to begin with or that we just need to say, you know what, in my spirit, I was hurt by that, but I'm just going to give him forgiveness for that. All right? If you go through the whole of the New Testament, there's really three categories primarily that we see worthy of confronting someone, worthy of going to your brother and having a conversation with. Number one is the holiness and purity of their life. Is the holiness and purity of their life in question? In their, in their life, do you see a pattern of sin that is beginning to take root? It's the doctrine. Is their doctrine uh, anti-gospel? Is their doctrine unbiblical? You, you, if, the, if so, you need to go and have a conversation with your brother. Is what they're doing threatening the unity of your church? Is what they're doing threatening the unity of your church? You need to ask yourself, before you go to your brother, before you go to your sister, before you, you talk with them about the offense that you have experienced, you need to ask yourself some very important questions. Am I just doing this because I want to get back at them? Am I just doing this because I want to air my grievances? Am I just doing this because I want to get something off of my chest? Or am I doing this because this brother or sister is in danger of sin? Am I doing this because this is bringing danger to my church? This perhaps will bring division to my church. Is in my mind, is it my own self-serving motives? Or is this for the good of the brother and the good of the church? See, I want you to notice here the attitude and motive behind all of this. Jesus makes this explicitly clear, and I'm thankful that he does. The last part of verse 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Notice what Jesus says. He says, between you and him alone. What is he saying? What you're going to see is we go through every step of church discipline throughout what Jesus, this, this kind of formula that Jesus lays out here for us is that Jesus is always interested in keeping it to the smallest circle possible. That Jesus' goal is not that the whole church will be brought in on every issue of sin. Jesus' goal here is not that every, every small group will be brought in on every issue of sin. That in every single instance, the goal is to keep it as small of a group as possible. Why? The goal here is not the humiliation of the brother or the sister. The goal here is, is not the retribution to the brother or the sister. The goal here is not even for them to make it right with the church or for them to make it right with you. The goal, the end goal, the big picture goal is what? That your brother might be one. That your brother might be one. That the center of all of this, the center of this conversation is not that you would feel better about yourself. 
The center of this conversation, the center of all of this is not that you would be able to get things off of your chest. The center of all of this is not that you would be able to air your grievances. The center of all of this is that your brother might be saved. That they might be rescued from their sin. That they might be delivered from their struggle. That they might be able to overcome what this stumbling, what this obstacle to the gospel that has appeared in their life. Think about what that teaches us about the attitude in which church discipline must be carried out. At the center of it is not how you feel. At the center of it is not what you think. It's not about your best interest. It's about the best interest of the other party. Now that doesn't feel good to most of us. We live in a world now where people say, well, I just say whatever I think. People just have to deal with it like that's some virtue. Like it's some virtue that you have an unbridled tongue. Like it's some virtue that you cause division and anger everywhere that you go. Like that's a virtue in the scriptures. This is counter that. This is opposite that. This is anti that. This This isn't about you at all. This is about putting to death what you feel. Putting to death what you want. Putting to death all those sinful motivations that you have to get back at a person or to humiliate a person or to make a person feel as bad as they had made you feel perhaps. So much so to say that in all of this, my main interest is your best interest. You see, the only way that we're going to be able to do church discipline properly The only way we're going to carry this out in a way that honors Jesus and honors the scriptures is if we take the attitude of the cross and apply it to our relationships. We take the attitude of the cross that says it's not about what's best for me, but what about what's best for you. We take the attitude of the cross that says I'm willing to die, I'm willing to suffer, I'm willing to endure pain that you might be better off, that you might be built up, that you might be right. We've got to check our motives over and over and over again. Because church discipline done rightly will save a person, but church discipline done wrongly will destroy a person. Our goal in the church, when we talk about sin, when we experience confrontation, when we push back on one another, when we resist one another, when we discuss things with one another, is not the destruction of the person, but the deliverance of the person. And if we ever get sideways on that, if we ever get off track on that, we have lost the gospel ourselves and should repent. We've got to evaluate our motives. We've got to to think clearly through what's happening there. But what I want you to see here is that this is the most common step, okay? 90% of all church discipline should end on the first step should end on one brother going to another brother, one sister going to another sister, and it should be over. The sister repents, the brother repents, they're restored, reconciled, forgiveness is given. By the way, if you want to know how hard forgiveness is, Jesus teaches this, right? This is hard. It's hard when you've been wounded in the church. It's hard when you've kind of been on the receiving end of somebody else's sin in the church. So Peter hears all of this. You know what his first question was? Jesus, how many times have we got to forgive somebody? Seven times? Seven times, you'll see that in verse 21. How many, how many times have we got to forgive somebody? You know what Jesus says? 77 times. 77 times. I've told you once, and I'll continue to tell you. The only way that sinners can coexist under one roof is by grace. 
by grace. Grace given to us by Jesus and grace given by us to one another. It's the only way that we're going to be able to make it. But this is the smallest area, the, the, the most common area though. And what I want you to understand is I see this as being fundamental to your discipleship. That you need this kind of church discipline in your life. That this is one of the fundamental pillars of true discipleship in the church and in your life. That what you need in your life and what I need in my life are brothers and sisters that live close enough to me that can provide for me healthy resistance. Healthy pushback. It's not usually a confrontation. Usually it's positive instruction. Usually it's a, it's a helpful question. Like, like, you need to think a little bit more about what you're saying there. I can't tell you, like, you might, this might catch you off guard. I got some dogmatic views about some things. I'm pretty convictional about some things. I know, like, y'all are, like, utterly shocked about that. And, and I tend to sometimes read the Bible and say, that's what it's going to be. We're going to do that. Completely stripped of context sometimes, right? And I can't tell you how many times Aaron or Zach has said, hey, Cody, let's Let's pump the brakes on that for a second here. Like, I hear you, but let, let me, let me, let me, let's look at this from another angle. There is nothing in my life that is bringing greater maturity in my theology and greater maturity in my understanding of the Bible than that. I need that. I need that resistance. I need that, that pushback. I need those, that brother-on-brother brother thing that where, where they can, they can kind of push back and say, I'm not sure about that. There have been times where I've, I've said something in a meeting, and one of them might come to me and say, hey, I, Maybe this doesn't usually go with the way that you, you frame yourself, and that's not usually the way you can, but you didn't, you really come across, I think, the way that you meant to come across. I need that, and I need to know that if I don't do it that way, I'm going to be held accountable. I need that in my life. I need resistance. All of us understand this, that resistance, when done in the healthy way, makes us stronger. Think about resistance training physically, Right? How is it that we get stronger? We get stronger by running with, with, with weights on our legs to add resistance, right? We get stronger by, by lifting barbells with weight on them that are heavy. We get stronger by pushing against resistance. Why is there so much moral atrophy in the church today? Why is there such moral weakness in the church today? Why are our spiritual muscles and our biblical muscles and our moral and ethical muscles so rounded and so underdeveloped and so immature? We have eliminated the resistance in the church. We have eliminated true gospel community where we push back on one another in healthy conversations. We've eliminated from our discipleship any kind of accountable relationship where somebody can speak into our life and point sin out. We have told people they don't have a right to tell us what to think. We have told people they don't have a right to disagree with us. And so as a result, our churches are weakening. Why is adultery the unwritten secret in the church? Because there's not men that will get in your grill and say, what are you doing? Why is pornography pervasive? permeating the church because there's not accountability there's no man-on-man -man -man relationship where we can say brother no you've got to cut that out of your life and put it to death why do christian singles think they can cohabitate 
with one another outside of marriage, completely sexually active, come to church and believe that they are in perfect harmony with the Lord. Because there's nobody in their life with the freedom to come in and say, you are in sin. And if you will not deny your sin, it will send you to hell. Why do our teenagers party just as hard? Why do our seniors have the same misconceptions about retirement as the world? Because we have zapped the church of her accountable power. We have drained the church of her ability to resist us in our sin. And we have atrophy. Our muscles are weakened. You want to know why we resist resistance? We resist resistance because we don't hate our sin enough and we don't love Jesus enough. If at the center of our lives was, I want God to be glorified in me. I want Jesus to be exalted in me. I want him to be honored in my life, to be a a living sacrifice poured out to him. If if our attitude was, I hate the sin in my life. I hate that it brings uh, separation between me and God. I hate that it brings shame on the gospel. I hate that it brings distance between my intimacy with the Lord. You know what we would want? We would want as many people as possible to speak into our lives to help us overcome it. We would empower people to say, when you hear me talk to my wife in a way that is unbecoming, tell me. We would surround ourselves with men that say, I'm not really sure that's what the Bible says, and push back on us. And I say, let me think about it for a minute. We would invite men and women into our lives to say, hey, I... I'm not really sure that your family, like, like something's just off here. I've known you for a long time, and you know that I love you, but, but I've sensed you kind of distancing yourself from the church. I've sensed you you're kind of distancing, distancing yourself from, from being as active as you once were. Kind of talk to me about it. Who has the freedom to speak into your life? Who has the freedom to speak into your life? If your first response is when someone confronts you in sin or somebody resists you in your view, if your first response is, is I don't want to hear it and you don't have the right, is your goal, is the goal of your life to elevate Jesus and to put to death what is sinful in you? Is that your goal? You need to be honest with yourself this morning, brothers and sisters. You need to be honest with yourself. As a church family, we need to restore the immune system of the church. We need to restore the immune system of the church so that we might get stronger, resisting one another in a helpful, gospel-centered, gracious, and kind way. Resisting one another, that spiritual sickness might be rid of our church. That we might be strengthened for the long haul. But what happens if they don't listen? What happens if you go to this person who has said, I'm controlled by the Holy Spirit, I've surrendered my life to Christ, I've submitted to his lordship in my life, but I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear about my sin. I don't want to hear, I I know what I'm doing. Uh, Mark, in his testimony, even said, I knew what I was doing was sin, and I just wasn't going to stop. What do we do in that situation? Jesus Moves on to verse 16. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What do you do when your brother does not listen? You love them enough to not quit. You love them enough to not stop. The easy thing is if you go to your brother who is in the midst of sin, who is destroying themselves and you know it, and they say, I don't want to hear it. The easy thing to do is to do what Pilate did. Pilate washed his hands and said, I'm just done with it, right? That's the easy thing to do. That's the cop out. That's a joke. That's not love. You know what love says? If you're driving 100 miles an hour toward a cliff, I'm going to jump in front of the car so that you know you've got to stop. Love says, if I see you stepping in front of a bus, I'm going to dive in there and I'm going to save you even if it costs me my life. Love says, it doesn't matter how much it costs me personally. It doesn't matter how much it hurts me personally. It doesn't matter how miserable it makes me personally. I'm going to put all of that down and I'm going to pursue you because I know it's what's best for you. Love doesn't quit. Love doesn't stop. And so Jesus says that what we should do is we should go and we should find one or two other brothers or sisters. We should find those people in our church that care about this person. We should find those people in our church that we have admiration for. And we should bring them into the situation that they might go with us. I think there's a secondary reason that we bring in other brothers and sisters, though. Notice the words that, that Jesus, is, Jesus used here in verse 16. He says that every charge may be established, established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Where do we typically use that kind of language? We typically use that kind of language in court, don't we? We use that kind of language when someone has a legal charge against them and we want to, to, to show that they are in sin. So what at the center of what Jesus is talking about here in verse 16 is Jesus as a concern for the truth. See, I find it true in most conflict, most uh, relational conflict, that there's three sides to every story. There's his side, there's her side, and there's the truth. And so what we have here is we have two other brothers or sisters that can come in that you can tell, your, tell what's happened. You're, not, you're still not telling the folks at Jack's. You're still not having a conversation with your, your Yorkie. You're, you're, you're waiting. You're bringing other brothers to have a conversation with them so that they might hear it. And you know what they might say? Brother, I think you're off base here. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I, don't th I understand that you're hurt, I understand that you're wounded, I understand that you didn't hear it right, but I still don't think that's an issue of sin on his part. I understand that you have a disagreement, but it's not a gospel issue. It's a secondary disagreement. You can both disagree on this issue, and it's not a sin on either one of you. So you kind of just need to, to drop it. Or, they might say, yeah, we've got to sound the alarm for this brother. We've got to sound the alarm for this sister. We've got to leave the hundred and go after her. We've got to leave the hundred and go after him. We've got to sit down with them. And we've got to go to them over and over and over and entreat them and plead with them and beg them to come back to the gospel. Beg them to come back to the church. Now what kind of people should you invite? I think that's an important question. It doesn't have to be an elder. It doesn't have to be a deacon, though I think those are, are wise people. I think it's generally helpful to get someone of the same gender that if you're going to talk with a lady, it's usually best to take another lady with you in the, in, in the, in the stage. But I think if, 
Ideally, it's somebody that cares about this person as much as you do. It's somebody that this person already has respect and admiration for. There are certain people that if they come and they confront me on sin, I would have to say back to them, you don't even know me. But then there are other people that if they were to come and confront me, I would hang my head and know that this person is not a person that, wants to, that is out to get me. This person is not a person that's out to destroy me. This is not a person that wants to harm me. This is a person that has proven their love for me, has proven their care for me, and they have a right to speak into my life things that other people don't have a right to say. Find those people when possible. Find people that you know are peacemakers. Find people that you know are not hot-headed. People that are, are gentle in spirit, that are gracious people, but are firm in the truth. Find those people. Find people that the Lord has uniquely gifted and invite them to come in and speak into the situation. But what if they still don't listen? What if they still don't listen? You know what Jesus says to do? This is in the rarest of cases in the New Testament. But brothers and sisters, this is un as unavoidable for us as the church as preaching the Bible is. It's as unavoidable for us as the church as singing songs is. It's as unavoidable for us as the church as the Great Commission is. You know what it says that we have to do? We have to bring them in front of the whole congregation. And we have to plead with them. We have to plead with them. At this point, this is the whole congregation waving their arms wildly. Stop! The bridge is out! The bridge is out! You're going to crash. You're going to destroy yourself. You're going to die. This is the whole congregation saying, you say that you were under the control of the Spirit, but you give no evidence to it. Repent so that you might be saved. This is the whole church looking at this brother, looking at this sister, saying, I love you. We collectively love you enough to tell you the truth that you must turn. You must change. Or... You must leave. To me, those were as hard of, a word, hard of words as there are in the New Testament. That if they don't change, if they don't repent, we are to disfellowship them from the church. That they might understand that they are disfellowshipped from the kingdom of God if they are not willing to repent. Jesus says to treat them like a Gentile, treat them like a tax collector. In other, words, in other words, treat them as an unbeliever. Show them that they are an unbeliever by every measure that you can see. It's hard, isn't it, church family? Those are difficult words. But notice how Jesus elevates his words as he goes. In verse 15... He says, if he listens to you. So you have the positive. You have best case scenario. He listens to you, your brother is warned. One. Verse 16, he says, if he does not listen to you. So you have the inverse. He didn't listen. So you're going to go back and make your case with one or two other brothers. Hopefully people that he respects or she respects. But then verse 17, what do you have? If he refuses to listen. If he refuses refuses to listen. We're not talking about disagreement. We're talking about defiance at this point. We're talking about someone whose heart is hardened. Hardened. There is nothing more fatal in the Christian life 
There is nothing more fatal on the planet Earth than a hardened heart. A heart that says, I am digging in my hills. You will not change my perspective. You will not change my direction. I'm going to do what I'm going to do because I am the boss of my life. That is a life that's living against the gospel. That is a life that is refusing and rejecting the gospel. That over and over and over, having been sought by brother after brother after brother, or sister after sister after sister, having been brought before the whole church, and the church waving their arms, you are in sin, you're going to be destroyed. If after all of that they continue in their sin, they have hardened their heart to a point that it can nearly not be broken. So drastic steps are taken. So that hopefully it will be softened. Hopefully the spirit can work through their disfellowship. To let them hit rock bottom. Which sometimes is the most gracious place for God to allow you to be. Where you become so broken that the only place you can look is up at him. We need that sometimes. We need to hit rock bottom. And so we have to recognize the church's authority in this situation as Jesus does. Jesus has given the church this authority, not me, not our document. That document is powerless if it's not supported by Jesus himself. Jesus has given the church this kind of authority, and we have to recognize it. To what end? Turn with me quickly to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews is toward the end of your Bible. Toward the end of the New Testament. And listen to what it says. Hebrews chapter 12, we'll begin in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we responded to them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as they seem best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. You get the picture there, brothers and sisters? What is the point of all of this? What is the point of discipline? What is the point of, of all of these difficult words? The point is that you might be right with God so that you might share and enjoy and know His holiness now and forever. It's that you might be delivered, that you might be rescued forever. It's that you might be right with God, with God, enjoying God, knowing God forever. The picture here is not a church that callously brings up people that they don't like and executes them. The picture here is a father weeping as he spanks his son. The picture here is a mom and dad whose hearts are grieving and they're gut-wrenched. They have to cut off support to their drug-addicted son so that they no longer enable his ways. We have to endure the agony, the excruciating agony of discipline. 
so that we might know the joy of restoration. So that we might know the joy of reconciliation. So that we might have testimonies like our brother this morning. That can say God works as he says he will work. And God does as he says that he will do. This morning, some of you have hardened your heart over and over and over every time you heard the gospel. Some of you teenagers, you think, yeah, I'll wait until I'm 20. I'll wait until I'm 25. I'll wait until I'm married. And then I will get right with God. The more you harden your heart, the more hardened it will become. And the more difficult it will be to ever have it softened again. Some of you, you come week after week after week and you hear us preach and you hear us plead with you and you invite you to come and you, you harden your heart over and over and over. This morning, may your heart be melted by the Spirit of God and that you might be right with Him. At Iron City, I look at us and I ask us what we will do. We will not answer for our church as we found her as we received her. But one day before God's throne, we will answer for how we pass her on. We will answer for who she is when we're finished. May we be found faithful. Let me pray.